Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureBiz Podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 143, and today's guest is Jameis Driscoll, CEO of Molten. Jameis has a strong history of success in the tech industry. He was an early member of the team at Demandware, which was a massive success story in the early days of SaaS. He played a key role in the company's growth to an IPO in 2012, and the company was later acquired by Salesforce.com for a reported $2.6 billion. Jameis is now leading Molten, a venture-backed company that embraces an API-first headless commerce service for high-growth businesses with sophisticated consumer engagement strategies. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Jameis's background and the overall progression of his career, a deep dive into the story of Demandware and how they were able to scale the company to an IPO and acquisition, all the details on Molten and how the company and its technology is disrupting the digital commerce industry, advice for executives who are looking to take on a CEO role at a company, tips on how to make the transition into a founder-led company a smooth one, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, have you checked out our YouTube channel? It is loaded with lots and lots of great content from our interviews with founders, executives, and investors. You will find lots of advice shared from these podcast interviews, plus our popular Inside and CXO briefing series. Go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jameis. Jameis, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. We have a lot to talk about. So uh, you're obviously working on something really cool right now with Molten, but you were part of the success story of Demandware that uh, was a company that went public in the Boston tech ecosystem and was later acquired by Salesforce. So we're going to talk about that whole you know, growth of the company and, and rocket ship. But um, you know, in, in the world that you live in, um, you know, e-commerce obviously is just the area that's continuing to grow. It's uh, you know, taking off. You know, it's been taken off every year exponentially yet how companies are selling to consumers is changing. Mm-hmm. And I, I just was curious to your thoughts on, you know, what you're seeing out there, some of the kind of like the interesting ways that companies are selling products. Like I had uh, the founder of Iris Nova on our podcast. They, they have a brand called Dirty Lemon and they're just selling, it's a high-end, um, you know, beverage company that is selling direct to consumer only through text messaging. So I thought that was kind of innovative and wow. unique. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So, so what have you been seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, it's been a really exciting journey right now. I mean, we're at a point where we think uh, digital commerce and retail is going through its next major wave of disruption. Um, it's gone through a series of sort of uh, rise and plateau moments, and it's now it's on to the next one. The really, I think, the meta thing that's happening that's really um, sort of it's so exciting and so energizing is uh, really retail is rethinking how, and commerce is rethinking how they're engaging consumers. And if you think about everything we've done in e-commerce, and it's been a wonderful 20, 25 year run, um, all it's really done is taken the offline model of generating traffic and bringing people to uh, a destination. That's what we've done in the physical stores, and that's what we did online. Advertise, drive traffic, bring, bring people to our site, get stuff in a basket, and transact. But the big aha moment is that really uh, the internet is a communication medium, not necessarily a place to go to now. And it's changed the way we're thinking. And so what we're seeing brands do, rather than think about you know, the consumer journey of driving people to a destination, they're trying to intercept the consumer right in the moment and create moments, which is what brands really do, and then increasingly make those moments transactional. Um, and consumers are rewarding brands with anybody who can um, – differentiate themselves in the way that they engage uh, to give them those moments. And those moments are often rewarded with purchases and loyalty and all of those things. 
So we're seeing the big rise like um, Sephora with its loyalty program and the way that it engages its consumers to try and bring the best consumers in closer. We're seeing increasingly things like um, SMS uh, subscription services where customers are able to reorder through SMS. Seeing things like uh, what well, one of our customers has done, a company called Deckard Brands, uh, which leads the, uh, the Hoka footwear, which is the marathon shoe. If you go out and see Hoka at a marathon, uh, your smartphone is the point of sale. You can purchase anything from Hoka just as you're walking around their booth. So what we're seeing is just this, uh, rather than drive consumers to the till, as they say, now it's about how do I create moments where the till is naturally embedded. Very, very cool, yeah. And it's exciting to see how the evolution is taking place. Yeah. Now, you're, let's rewind the clock. I'm always fascinated by the foundational years. So to talk about you know, your background. So we're, even you know, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah. Um, well, so I grew up in a lot of, I guess I grew up in a lot of places, the simple answer. Um, spent a lot of time on the coast of Maine um, when I was a young, a young child, towns like Camden and Brooklyn, Maine. Um, and then moved south of Boston and spent sort of through high school years there, went to school outside of Philly. Um, so I, I moved around a fair amount. Um, and what I really liked about that was it gave me a lot of different perspectives. Um, even just within the United States, we have different viewpoints in different parts of the world. And it was really nice to be experiencing all of those. Um, so how what was I like as a child? I, I don't know. I guess I'd call myself fairly average. Um, I was curious. Uh, I like to learn new things and see what was going on out there. And I was always in one hobby or another at any point in time. So go deep in a hobby, take it for a while, find a new hobby, do that again. So upon graduating from school, but like it looked like you were going to be a journalist. Was that the goal? And yeah, I mean, I would say uh, maybe some people have a fairly straight line career path. Mine certainly was not. Um, you know, when, we, when I got out of university, it was uh, sort of, what would I really want to do? Um, and I'd always enjoyed English, writing, communicating. Um, I'd always also had a passion for the, you know, the outdoors at that age of my life. And so it's an opportunity for me to say, okay, how do I make a career out of both of these things? And um, that ultimately led me to an outdoor magazine where I spent a few years as a feature editor and feature writer based in the middle of Manhattan. Oh, that sounds like a great experience. No, it was so, so how did you end up in marketing then and, and specifically in the tech industry? Yeah. Um, well, so at the time, um, my, uh, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, was living up in Boston. And uh, so at, at enough time in the outdoor magazine, I said, I have to go you know, follow something, <laughs> follow, uh, follow my heart and uh, moved up to Boston. And I always wanted to be involved in startups. And uh, at that, I always liked the idea of combining and building a business almost from scratch and just launching out from there. So uh, once I got up to Boston, I started working on a business plan um, with a couple of other gentlemen to actually deliver content to, at the time, credit unions, uh, this was right in the dot-com bubble, who were trying to figure out how to build online portals for their own banks, but didn't necessarily have the software infrastructure or content to do that. So we built the business plan around it. Long story, never got funded, never took off, but I had the opportunity to meet a bunch of other folks in tech um, and uh, from there, they, uh, one of them went on to take a CEO role and called me afterwards and said, would you like to take a marketing job? And I said, sounds good. What's a marketing job? <laughs> uh, and uh, what I didn't know uh, at the time when I was in magazines was that I was actually getting a foundation in what marketing was all about, which is how to communicate and take complicated and uh, long thoughts and simplify them into a way that people could consume and absorb. And what I found was that all of those skills that I was learning when I was 
generating copy and headlines and subheads and captioning photos and doing all that was really a foundation in marketing. Then, so you worked at Essential first, right? They, they were like a analytics BI type of tool. If I'm, yeah, yeah. Was correct. Essential was exactly so. Essential was a um, was a, they they coined the term sort of data integration platform. They were a, an ETL company and actually had roots in. Um, Informix, uh, just before the database, so they had just come out of the database sale of Informix, the Informix database sale to IBM, and started up with some ETL tools and a significant amount of capital, and then launched out through acquisition to build a suite of data integration, data quality tools. Um, so it was a, uh, it was, I think, my first company that I worked in tech, which was at scale, and really had an opportunity then to take a formative marketing experience and say, all right, now what is it like to support a large sales organization who is trying to drive numbers and needs to do things like differentiate against competition and needs to understand its angle and how to you know, position the product and tell the big product story. Um, so I spent a few years there and you know, had a great opportunity to work with a very good marketing organization, a very good uh, sales organization. And I really got to see firsthand you know, when sales and marketing are on the same page um, what kind of value can be created in an organization? Next was Profit Logics, which was retail okay. software. I forget exactly what, but I remember the name, and it was a great team there. Yeah, it was another you know phenomenal team. Yeah, Profit Logic was um, using analytics to help retailers make smarter smarter decisions about the continuum of product, from how much to buy, how to price it, when to discount. Uh, just because obviously product represents a very significant um, you know, capital investment inside of a retailer and the more efficient they are with their capital, the better they do. So uh, ProfitLogic started around this concept of how to optimize markdowns, uh, particularly for soft goods, shirts, sweaters, uh, things of that nature, um, so that things that were inherently seasonal, when to take the price discounting on them in the most optimal way to make sure that each store was left with the ideal being zero, you know, at the end of the season. And so um, very sophisticated team behind that who really understood the analytics and the formulas uh, on how to help every retailer optimize that choice. All right. So I don't know if Gap was a customer, but so there's, you know, how it ends up in the back of the store in the discount rack. It was, you know, profit logic that was helping make that decision. Correct. And the goal would be to eliminate the discount rack uh, exactly. as quickly exactly. as possible with minor markdowns early versus steep markdowns late. Which led to a successful acquisition by Oracle. Mm -hmm. um, so, so how long were you part of that team and part of that you know post acquisition team? I was part. So I was part of the Oracle team for about two years. Uh, and uh, Oracle at the time had also made an acquisition just prior to Profit Logic of a company called Retech, uh, and were formulating their first, I don't know, first maybe second real vertical team uh, to go from horizontal technologies like databases and go vertical into application industry suites. And so with that, uh, the Retech acquisition and then ProfitLogic, Oracle was building out suites for things like um, ERP for retail, for price management, for, uh, eventually for point of sale with another acquisition uh, to get into domain specific apps. Um, so that became a team of roughly, oof, in that was called the Oracle Retail Business Unit or RGBU, I think about 1,200 people at its peak. Now, from there, you went to the de de Demandware. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Demandware, um, it was in this, you know, e-commerce platform SaaS world before that was really 
common. So they were, you know, carving this, you know, like Salesforce was around, but it wasn't like you were outsourcing your e-commerce function to a platform company. So this was groundbreaking of its time. Mm -hmm. Where was the stage of the company? And then, you know, kind of walk us through kind of the evolution of, of the growth and scale. Yeah, well, you're exactly right on what it was doing. And also you've highlighted some of the points of, um, uh, paving the road a little bit on it because, um, it was a new concept at, at the time. So I joined in 2006 and there were probably around 20, 22 people in the business. I think when I joined, if memory serves well, so very small, uh, we were in an office out, um, out of Woburn, Massachusetts, and, uh, we could all sit in the open, very small office. Um, and yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it was taking one of the concepts at the time, which was new and radical, this thing called software as a service. Uh, and Demandware was trying to deliver it for mission critical applications like commerce. And so maybe you would tolerate software as a service for things like CRM or um, other sort of applications where if it, you know, if it goes down for a little bit, that's okay. It's not the end of the world. Well, retailers didn't quite feel the same way about if their e-com platform went down for just a little bit. And so there was a very big, um, big proving ground to, you know, convince retailers that this was actually better and safer. Um, but it was new. And it was with something like that, with revenue and selling to consumers, it's also very emotional. And so the sense of, you know, the revenue generating engine is going to sit outside the corporate firewall and someone else's servers. You know, that was a letting go moment for the industry. Um, and uh, you know, it was hard. But um, in the end, it proved out to be safer and better for the industry and ultimately um, started a wave of change for a lot of other applications doing it as well. So you were there, you know, pretty much the full life cycle of the company. So how did you start to get that initial traction, the buy-in from companies to say that this is the way that we should be going with you know, outsourcing our e-commerce operations. Yeah. Um, well, there were a couple things that I think Demandware did very well. One is it focused very, very small initially on the market um, and um, really obsessed over the segmentation and to make sure that its market was just as small as it could be so that all of its energy could focus in one small area. And in that case, Demandware chose, you know, uh, highly, um, highly branded retailers and manufacturers who had high margins and luxury goods where the, you know, the delivery to the consumer and the experience was exceptionally valuable to them uh, and, and bore down on that. And then initially getting into some of the accounts, we would convince people to give us just one brand. If they were a family of brands, just to give out the one brand and then prove the one brand. If you prove the one brand, you get the second brand. If you get the second brand, you get the third. Um, and really obsess over quality of service and delivery and accountability and feeling like you're in it with the customer to help them grow and be successful. So that became our pure sort of a focus way to get demand work going in the early days. Um, and then uh, like most technology cycles, you know, with enough early adoption, enough proof of success, then others come and then, you know, the wheel starts to spin. And how did you take a marketing approach? Because you, you led marketing initially at the company. You yeah. into other roles as the company scaled. But uh, like, how did you think about marketing initially to you know, penetrate that market? We thought about marketing just being actually very small. Mm -hmm. um, we thought about marketing in terms of little groups of people who are highly influential to one another and to making sure that when we delivered success for one customer, the most immediate circle knew that. Uh, that we were appealing to the brand aspirations um, of the company and less so on just the technology and how the technology works because you know, we at the time were selling um, more than anything potential 
um, the idea that there was more to be had in the e-com world and that if technology could support that vision, great things could happen. And so we appealed very much to those folks. Um, and we you know, thought small and operated small initially and made sure that we had a core group of very successful and happy customers. And then from there, the customers really carried the work um, and uh, talked about why it was successful. And we just were able to help them amplify that message. But um, I'd say my, the marketing job was easy because we as a company were obsessed with making sure that they were, the customers that is, were very, very successful, um, which made a great platform on which to market. No, the, you led international expansion too. So, so I don't think I've ever, you know, had someone on the podcast where we talked about, you know, you take something that has roots and growth in North America yet, you know, expanding internationally. So, so what, what, what's that like? And what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome? Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, toward the latter part of my time uh, at Demand where I moved overseas to Munich with my family um, and um, we you know, had the privilege of working with, you know, the team that was there and, uh, you know, it was, um, it was frankly, it was reminiscent of the earliest days of Demandware as well, and that you know, they were sort of somewhat startup-y in their mentality out in each of the markets. And of course, you know, Europe is not a single market. It's a set of diverse markets with diverse needs and cultures. And, um, and so it was, uh, it was a great exercise in sort of going over and helping um, to give more authority to each of the regions to be able to act autonomously in each of their markets, because you know, the people who were in the market knew those markets the best. They knew the company the best. Uh, and to, you know, facilitate more and more control and authority for them to operate autonomously in that market, um, whatever that market was, whether it was France or UK or Germany or the Netherlands, uh, and um, to really grow, grow their business. Um, and it was so exciting to see the team just take off there. Um, and they just, uh, they did a phenomenal job. And I highlighted earlier that, Demandware did go public, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, then IPO is a, you know, it's a, it's you know, another step in a company's history and evolution. It's not the end all be all, right? But uh, but it's an important one, and it's an achievement by you know a group of people that you know do something really uh, complex in terms of building a company. Mm -hmm. So what what was that like? Because Demandware went public in two thousand and twelve, right? But, you know, two thousand eight financial downturn, two thousand nine, you know, rest. RIP resting, you know, get the, the whole you know, slide deck from Excel, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, and it was just lean, right? 10, 2010, 2011. And then demand goes public. So, so what was that like? Uh, well, you know, it was, uh, I would say, of course, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was a lot of fun to do that. But our CEO, Tom, Tom Ablang, had done, um, had led the team through a very important thing almost nine months before the IPO, even before, even as we were just gearing up for it. He pointed the company's thinking long past the IPO um, to get to the point that you exactly mentioned, which is the IPO is not a destination, it's a capitalization event to help the company continue to grow. And he got the whole company's mind around what would it be like to you know, have a business, I think at the time we were processing, I don't know, six or eight billion in revenue, consumer revenue. Um, and he put out the idea, which is what would it be like to process 30? And how would we get there? And so suddenly the whole company's mindset was around, how do we do that? Uh, and then by the time the IPO happened, of course, it's a wonderful milestone, like every capitalization event in the company is. They get bigger as the time, time goes on. But we were all at that stage looking way past that into, all right, how do we grow beyond this? Um, and so I just thought that was such an exceptional leadership move to you know, get everybody thinking 
it's a wonderful event and it's an event on the way to something, not a destination. Now, even though you were part of the leadership team early on in the, in the company's you know, foundational years, your role continued to evolve. So eventually mm -hmm. you, you ran a good percentage of the company from you know, marketing, uh, operations, products, mm -hmm. and probably other functional areas that I, I'm mm -hmm. not catching. So, so how did, what, what was that like? So, you know, you're kind of joined this company at an early stage of 20, 22 people. It scales to a certain magnitude of employees and you're running, you know, a very large percentage of the business. So, mm -hmm. so how did you, you know, learn to take on that type of responsibility? <laughs> um, boy, I wish I had a great clean answer for you. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think the, um, the thing that Demandware had, um, and most great companies do have, it was, um, it was really team in the truest sense. Um, and so people were quite comfortable saying, I don't know how to do that. Um, you know, um, boy, what am I gonna do now? And you could lean into people who uh, did know more and they would help you. Um, and so there was plenty of opportunity along the way where things were, um, certainly I maybe didn't know what I was doing, um, but had the opportunity to ask. And um, likewise, people could ask me things. And so it was a very nice environment in which to take risk. Um, and to learn and stretch because it was um, it was accepted and it was encouraged and um, and you knew you had teammates around you who would be helpful. So, you know, you um, you work hard, you work with smart people, you learn along the way, you admit your mistakes, um, hope to learn from them, you know, treat them like tuition, uh, and um, and do it with good people who are there to support you, and then you'll support them. So, Demandware had a successful run as a publicly traded company, and then Salesforce acquired. Uh, the company in 2016 for reported $2.8 billion. So, uh, you know, a very, very successful exit and an important uh, outcome for the Boston tech community as a whole. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once you decided like, hey, it's, you know, time to do something new or different. Um, you know, so is that what led you into like an EIR role at a, at a venture firm? So it's uh, under yeah. EIR. I'm always fascinated, like, how does that come together? Is it, you know, because you knew the investors there and was like, hey, I'm thinking about doing something new or like what's, how does that come together? Yeah, that's, well, that's exactly how it, how it happened um, in my case. Um, you know, I had uh, taken a couple of months off um, and I, you know, I always, I've always been in startups. So I was always going to go back to startups. Um, it's what I love to do. I love to build things with great people. So that leads one to a startup environment. Um, and I happen to know uh, the investors at Underscore, uh, the principals there. Michael Scott, when he was at Northbridge, had been an investor. When he was at, uh, been an investor at Demandware when he was at Northbridge. Um, and then uh, John Pierce, who was uh, the other partner there, um, had been the original CFO at Demandware and then became the CEO at Demandware as well. So I knew the team, and um, you know, I just expressed that I was starting to think about what I wanted to do next, and you know, they said. You know, would you consider being an EIR? And I said, of course, what's an EIR? Uh, <laughs> and I got to learn a little bit more about what an EIR is. And, um, you know, they were gracious and sort of explaining it to me more and teaching me about it. And effectively, it became a way for us collaboratively to go on a search. Um, Underscore was looking into its, uh, its portfolio and what the opportunities were. And I could add some value from an operator's point of view. Um, and... Likewise, it gave me an opportunity to see the venture capitalist point of view as they look at opportunities. And there's some wonderful, interesting moments along the way as I looked at things from an operator's view and they looked at things from a venture capital view and couldn't be more different, but it gave me great insight as to why, you know, why and how um, they approach opportunity. Uh, and it was there that I had the great fortune of meeting Molten. All right, well, let's talk about Molten. So um, 
you know, what does the company do? You know, the little bit about the history of the company in terms of the founders. Sure. Sure. Yeah, well, Molten was founded in Newcastle, England um, by three founders who came out of an e-commerce agency background. And like most great companies, it was born from personal frustration with what they were, um, what they were dealing with. They were right, and as an agency, you're right often at the intersection between a brand's ideas and the technology execution of making those ideas come, come to life. And they were listening to all these wonderful ideas that our customers had about ways they wanted to engage consumers and the type of commerce experiences they want to offer and then had to deliver on that with the technology to hand and found the frustrations of technology born for a different era being retrofitted and manipulated to serve new types of digital experiences. Uh, so they actually quit perfectly good paying jobs and decided to rethink what the e-commerce platform could be. Um, and they thought about it natively as being uh, APIs or discrete functions and services where not as a fully integrated platform, but where each piece of the platform was effectively its own function and could be consumed and delivered just as that function. Search could be search. The checkout could be the checkout. The catalog could be the catalog. And that gave brands the freedom to mix and match and assemble those things just any way that they wanted to, which was the key to unlocking how are we going to engage consumers in a way that's brand specific, that's great for the moment, that is also transactional. Uh, and it was such an interesting way to approach the technology. And it was, um, it was inspired by other technologies like SendGrid or Twilio or Stripe. Uh, other companies who had really thought about what it meant to empower technologists and developers with simple, elegant tools that are incredibly powerful. And um, so I had an opportunity to meet with them and understand what they were doing. And I really just got inspired by what they were up to and um, just started working with them. Um, no idea what the outcome was going to be, but I just really liked what they were doing and I got very excited about it and um, wanted to be supportive along the way. And when it came time to extend into North America and raise the next round, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough that they, you know, extend their offer. Well, the company does remind me of uh, the same type of philosophy or approach that like Stripe has. You mentioned Stripe as an example, and that totally was what resonated with me where very much a developer led API type of thinking. Um, so, which, you know, for payment processing for VentureViz, actually, I used to use PayPal. Yeah. Mass, mass, like subscriptions of PayPal. You know, I, I wanted, like, and I'm like, I thought PayPal was like the global leader in payment commerce. I'm like, how is this so poor? Like the mm -hmm. UI. And then Stripe was like, oh, it's just simple. And I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. complex product. You got to have a developer set it up for you. You can't just plug and play. But right. uh, it does exactly what it's supposed to do, and uh, it just you know makes world the world a better place. Yeah. But, yeah. With Molten, so um, you know, there's this term out there in the industry called headless commerce. So, so what's, yep. give examples of like how how Molten differentiates itself and how it sits in the whole ecosystem. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, headless commerce, uh, colloquially, like most good marketing terms that get co-opted by everybody, eventually they do lose their definition. Uh, you know, our view of it is is largely headless just means that. Most web architectures will come with a reference on top on uh, delivering things to a website, and that's you know the uh, the website. Um, but headless is sort of how do we do this without the head uh, and deliver you know our own um, user experiences and our own frameworks that allow people to go build whatever kind of website they want. The interesting thing about headless is it provides more freedom, but not total freedom, um, because. It really depends on what's happening below the API itself, because what's going on is when you 
just take the head off of a e-com platform as probably as far as the analogy for headless goes as we want to take it, you're still, the body is still the same. Um, and you can manipulate that only so far. And that's not what we hear the market asking for. We hear the market saying, I want to assemble all my business logic, all my control. I want full freedom for how I engage the consumer and not work within technology constraints that dictate to me how things should be. Uh, I, as the retailer and the brand, want to decide how it should be. So Headless gives better freedom at the UI layer, but not fully the freedom that one gets from a microservices approach where each function is autonomous and the retailers can mix and match it however they like. So what, what, like one of the customers that you, that you uh, mentioned on your website is Stance, which is yep. uh, a brand that I love and big fan of, of their socks. So, uh, so how do they you know, leverage your platform? Yeah, so Stance, um, so Stance is headed by a guy named Paul, uh, Paul Zengel, who uh, runs the, um, both the retail stores as well as the e-com business. Um, and Paul has always been an e-commerce innovator, um, even throughout his career and places that he's been. You know, he's always pushed the edge of how consumers and brands are going to interact. Uh, and he's doing the same with Stance. And what we discussed was a project around what if we got to a point where consumers could walk into the store, bring out their smartphone, never have to download an application, use their smartphone to barcode scan a product, and literally just leave. Never go to the register, never do anything that requires you to queue up and give someone a credit card and do all that. Because your phone has the payment details, your phone knows everything about that. So why do we have to go to the register? Now there are a couple of rules around what we wanted to build. We didn't want consumers to have to download another application because we just knew that that was something that was just a point of friction and people wouldn't really do that. So it had to be web-based, uh, basically a website delivered on your phone, in our case, a progressive web application, where someone could quite literally walk into the store, pull out their smartphone, barcode scan with their thumb, uh, pay with their thumb with Apple Pay or Google Pay, and then just leave. Um, so that's what we did. And to sort of highlight the power of what these types of really flexible services can do, from the time that we had this sort of brainstorming discussion until we were live in the store, it was seven weeks. We didn't have the application ahead of time, but that's the kind of speed that, and freedom that retailers want is, you know, let's iterate, let's test new things, let's try them. Not all of them are going to work, but if you can change the formula of what the investment case is um, in terms of how much time or capital it takes to test, well, then you can really unlock the ability to do the fail forward, fast fail models that everyone wants to get to, except for historically, there hasn't been a whole lot that's particularly fast about retail tech. And what's the current stage of the business in terms of you know, size of employees or whatever you can share? Yeah, sure. We're uh, a little bit north of 20 people um, and um, going to market, uh, helping right now predominantly innovators, as most uh, early stage companies do, who are trying to separate what the consumer experience is all about. Um, they're building value on unique ways in which they want to engage consumers. And uh, so we're focused predominantly on them at this point, building up the use cases. Um, and we think the road in front of us looks, looks pretty bright. You've talked about your career progression mm -hmm. uh, and now you're your CEO of Molten. So what advice would you give to other um, you know, individuals that are in executive roles that have aspirations to become CEO of a company? Like, mm -hmm. like what advice would you give to others? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and uh, I think the one, the one piece of guidance I would give to someone considering the role is to really know why um, and know why they would want the role. Um, there's so many different reasons why people would take the job and are drawn, are drawn to it. 
but it's important, I find, just to know why uh, you want it um, and why you want to do it, because it's the kind of thing that will sustain you. Um, and people will say it's driven by either passion for the industry, passion for the company, passion for the product. I just think it's a very personal thing that people should just know and be really clear with themselves as to why they get excited about it. And then the other thing that uh, I think you know might be a challenge for certain companies is you know, you've got a founder led company and then there's a CEO that's coming in from the outside. Like, how do you help to make sure that that's a, you know, smooth process and transition? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I can only speak to what, to what we did here. Um, and, um, I tried to just, uh, ask a lot of questions, learn a lot, um, and listen and understand. And we'll spend a lot of time rationalizing ideas um, and rationalizing perspectives and how important that can be. Um, we won't always agree on everything, no set of humans do. But I think it's really important is that you're willing to spend the time to discuss and understand perspectives um, and what really, um, because all the intentions are good, um, all the intentions align, but you have to make sure that you're really working that in a way that um, we can all get on the same page and execute in business. And so for me, it was really important to understand and respect the passion, the commitment um, that our founders had made, you know, and why they had chosen to take really brave steps of um, committing great portions of their life to building something that they were so passionate about. Um, and um, to really understand how um, to treat that carefully and, and, and to understand how um, how precious that is. And so um, we spent a, I've tried to spend a lot of time with them, you know, listening to that and understanding that and being very, very respectful of that. And then there are times we have to artfully or, you know, there are moments where they have to shave a little bit of the corners off on things to make things go in the market. And the only way I think you can do that is through discussion um, and assessment and looking at it from as many ways as possible and understand what's right for business and then go do it. And what do you think has been like the biggest challenge, you know, stepping into the CEO role of a venture back company? You know, you ran a very large percentage of the demandware business. So it's not about scale and having, you know, teams and teams of people reporting into you, you know, but now as CEO of a, of a company that's, you know, that's venture back series a, like mm -hmm. the biggest, biggest challenge of running a, a company. Yeah. Um, well, I can't distinguish between, um, being CEO of a company that's not venture backed because this is my one and only CEO experience thus far. So um, they are synonymous. Uh, you know, I think the thing that um, the thing that I look at most is uh, maintaining the smallest amount of focus we can, um, because there's so much possibility and there's so many ways in which things you know go. And there's so much opportunity where you can take the product this way or go for that customer is to really trying to make sure that we're, that we're staying as focused as we can on what our core mission is and achieving that. Um, so the analogy often used is, um, you know, if you want to start a fire with a magnifying glass, you've got to keep the beam of light very, very small. Um, and, um, you know, startups are always staffed by optimists, um, and, uh, which is great. And so optimists believe they can do it all, which is great. Uh, and then the opportunity is, all right, now we have to take all that optimism and harness it into a very small area. Um, and so I would say just continuing to try and do that and assessing uh, what are the choices and decisions we need to make now versus what are the ones that we don't really need to make now we can make later so that we can focus on the priority that we have to hand right now. So what would you have for uh, 
recommendations out there for maybe uh, podcasts other than the Venture Fist podcast, of course, yeah, of course, maybe book book recommendation, things that entrepreneurs should should uh, check out, or even you know, it could be non business related stuff, just sure. to kind of clear the head. Well, my I guess my one I've got a couple of favorite books. Um, you know, there's always, of course, the standard of you know the hard thing about hard things. That's a great yeah, book. Amazing. Um, yeah. Find his dog ear carefully and all of that. But it's a, it's a wonderful book. Um, one of my uh, all time favorite books is the One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey. Um, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, it's a fun read. It's about ninety pages, maybe hundred. Big type, which is always helpful. But it's effectively all about um, delegation and management in a business. And um, it's such a gr it's a humorous look at how best to uh, really make sure that you're delegating as much as you can and empowering teams to go make decisions as best as you can. And it uh, it's disarming with humor. It's a wonderful way to remind oneself, particularly me, that I can look back on things saying, "Oh yeah, I could have done that differently." Um, and uh, but it's a great way to look at it. And there's some rules about delegation in the business, and um, you know and how empowering it is to teams um, and individuals to be given challenges that potentially they may think are just slightly larger than they are right now, but then how energized they are by stretching up for them um, and how great it is to be able to uh, give that to people and how to manage that in the right way so you don't give them too much, um, but you're also giving them all the right stuff. And it's just, a, it's a wonderful humorous book and it's intended for the manager uh, hence humor to uh, disarm them in the ways in which that uh, they could probably do things a little bit better for their people. I am absolutely checking that book out. It's a great one. What, uh, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? I know you're busy building a company, but uh, when you have yeah. some free time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so, you know, husband and a father of four sons. So uh, there's always yeah, something going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good time. So, um, yeah, we live up on the North Shore and uh, there's always something happening on the weekend, whether it's soccer games or outdoor pursuits or any of that stuff. So um, occasionally there might be a hobby or two in a workshop. Like I said earlier, I always like to build. So something's being cooked up in a workshop somewhere. Got it. Well, James, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and your professional history and obviously the, you know, the story of demandware and of course all the great things you're up to now with Molten. Yeah, thank you, Keith. It's been great to speak. I've enjoyed it. Uh, enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.